Turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. We're going to be in 4 today, but I need to prepare you for what's coming. Exodus chapter 3. Let's have a word of prayer, and we will begin with a reading from chapter 3 of Exodus, preparing us for what we have today. Father, we come before your presence today in awe of the God that we serve, the one who is almighty, all-knowing, who is sovereign over all things, the one who has redeemed us from our bondage of sin and slavery, slavery to ourselves, slavery to our passions. But, Lord, you have redeemed us. Help us, therefore, to give you the glory and the praise and to show our gratitude to you and also take this wonderful news to the world, just like Moses was to take this good news to his people. And so, Father, bless us today as we look into your word. Help me to be able to say the things that I need to and in a way that will be clear and understanding to your people but also challenging to them. So bless us now, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray, amen. Chapter 3, verse 16. Here is the summary, the storyboard, the plot. Here is the trailer that God puts out for uh, Moses to see of what's going to happen. So he's got a very clear view because uh, Moses has had some questions. God wants him to go to the people and go back and lead them as the deliverer out of their bondage. And so as uh, God proposes that, God says, I'm going to come down and I'm going to deliver the people. And I want you to go and get the people out. And Moses is saying, me? No, no, I tried that and failed. So he is giving protest Back to God. He's arguing with God. Something that you and I would never, ever do is resist God, argue with him, fuss with him. Lord, you got this all wrong. We would never do that. But Moses did. And so here is what God reveals to him. Chapter 3, verse 16. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord... Notice all capitals. If you see all capitals in the word Lord, that's Yahweh. The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, of Jacob, appeared to me saying, I've observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise, I promise, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. A land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And you shall put on your son's and your daughters, so that you shall plunder the Egyptians. This was all a part of God's plan and God's justice to bring about um, redemption for his people and grace and goodness to them. So, let me move over here for just a second and get down to our slide for this. We are... Right here, we're looking at the summary of all that would unfold as Moses obeys God and returns to Egypt to deliver the people. Did it seem pretty clear to you? 
I mean, did, did God lay out in that trailer all the events that were going to happen here? And this is what, what's, what's going to happen. This is what's laid out for you. And God is saying, all right, the people are going to listen and believe. Pharaoh will be confronted and yet have a hard heart. He will refuse to let the people go. He will do wonders. God will do wonders by a mighty hand. That word wonders appears 17 times in the book of Exodus of the 36 times in the Old Testament. This is a, a book of miracles here. And then he, he says, fifth, that Pharaoh will expel the Israelites from the land and God's people will take away great treasures. It's as if God says in that moment, okay, Moses, here's the plan. I've got everything under control, right? And with such an assurance from the Lord, Moses certainly has nothing to fear in saying yes to God, right? I mean, such a view of an all-knowing, almighty God should encourage Moses as well as us in our lives that God is going to take care of things. He knows all things. He controls all things. He is sovereign, right? So let's go. And yet, Moses speaks. Makes me nervous. He has something more to say to God. So let's look at that. Here we come to the third objection, concern, whatever you want to label that. What if they don't listen? Chapter 4, verses 1 through 9, so we're going to be focusing for a few minutes. And this will focus on the power of God, and Moses will hold the rod of God. Now, let's look and see what this has to say to us then. It says, Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord didn't appear to you. What is wrong with that sentence? I mean, you you have to wonder. Moses, did you watch the trailer? Do we need to play that again? Go back and listen to what I just said to you. Because what he says is a direct contradiction to what God had just said and promised. Look back at chapter 3, verse 18. What did it say there? God told Moses, they will not listen to my voice. Uh, God said, they will listen to your voice, 318. Moses now says, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. I know you said that, God, but you don't know these people. They don't go to all saints. Well, look, God, you got this all wrong, and you just do not understand these people. So is it, is it God's patience with Moses and with me and sometimes maybe with you amazing? Isn't it amazing how that we will fuss and fume and complain? Oh, we don't directly say, God, you blew this, but we're saying, man, how could this ever happen? I can't believe this happened. It's really a complaint to God. So, next slide. God answers this ridiculous statement on his part that they're not going to listen by promising his power through three unique signs. Verses 8 and 9 are wonders, verse 21, they're called. These aren't parlor tricks, and they are Signs, S-I-G-N, because they are significant, S-I-G-N, significant. Now, Alec Motier, look at that quote. I want you to, to uh, really savor this quote, what it has to say. This is a wonderful expression here. In a broad sense, a wonder is something that halts people in their tracks. Making them stop and stare. And a sign points beyond itself to something else. A wonder is meant to catch our attention. A sign is meant to engage our minds. A wonder astonishes. A sign instructs. And as we move through these next chapters in Exodus, I want you to see these are wonders. <gasps> Look what's happening. Something like has never happened since the beginning of the world. I mean, he will say that in Exodus. But it has a significance. There is a sign to it. There's a purpose behind all of this. Now, the first sign. A staff becomes a snake. 
All right, so verse 2, God asked Moses, what is that in your hand? A staff, an ordinary shepherd's crook, a walking stick. God says in verse 3, throw it on the ground. Moses did, and if you look at verse 3 here, it became a snake, and Moses did exactly what any of us would have done. Right? Tell you a quick story. I don't think I've told this here, but I was uh, about two or three years ago, I was working on a property. I do lawn work, uh, and uh, I was working on a property where the wife has Alzheimer's, was confined to a bed, and the man was getting dialysis, and he was confined, and so I had to take care of various things there besides the lawn, too, and I was take care in and out of their garage. He had a massive garage that he himself had built. You could have put 16, no, four cars in there. And uh, there was a boat in there, all kinds of things. So one day I had to go down there to get something. So I hit the button to go inside. The the, uh, gate door is going up. And as I do that, I step right inside and I see out of the side of my eye a motion. That's going up, but something is coming down. And suddenly I looked that way, and there is a copperhead that had been sunning, I guess, up in that thing. And he fell about, let's see, about two feet away from me. Not quite a full wide step. And he coiled immediately. I disturbed his rest. I understand that. I'm the same way. Somebody wakes me up. So, so there it is right there. I was amazed that I did not jump, but some, something inside, God perhaps said, don't move. <laughs> and I didn't move for a second. I just looked at it, and then I started talking to the snake. Now, I, I realize that's a little weird, <laughs> but I said, now, I want you to just stay right there. I, I, I promise. I'm, I'm going to step away for a minute, but I will be back. And I've got something for you but I just want you to stay there. And it's, you know, that little head's just kind of done. So, you know, I just start making my slow move in case I need to do a fast move. So I'm, I'm inching away. My heart starts again, okay, because I'm far enough away now. He's not going to get me. I walk around the, uh, the boat. I go up, and, and I find a, a very nice item that's hanging on the wall there, uh, which was a long axe. And so I wasn't going to leave that there because I've been going in and out. I, I have no problem being a snake killer. So anyway, uh, I, went, I, I don't do that to black snakes, by the way, unless they're in my house or on my property when I've got grandkids around. But I, I came back around, and I said, I'm back. I'm just having this conversation. I'm trying to keep myself calm <laughs> because my... Heart is racing. My blood is hot. I'm coming over there. And so I'm getting as close as I can. I, I look the length of the axe. I look at the length I'm standing away. I'm going to have to bend over to strike. And I'm thinking, uh, you know, this, this could be tricky. And if I miss. So anyway, sometime I'll tell you the rest of the story. But it's it's. <laughs> Simply said, uh, I made one blow, and it was a good one. And uh, I am just very glad, and I, I brought the snake out. There was a nurse who was there in the house taking care of the people, too. I brought it out and said, would you like some snake? Uh, but anyway, that, that said, here Moses ran. That is my natural instinct. Uh, but then God said this. There was a, a, a second sign. <clears throat> or he said, uh, God told him, put, put your, out your hand and catch it by the tail. I am so glad God on that day when I was in that garage did not say take it by the... I, I think I would... God, remember Moses protesting? I think I would have protested. But by the tail, you've got to be kidding. To his credit, Moses did exactly what God said, though the Hebrew language indicates that Moses was rather tentative in in reaching out. 
And as soon as he caught it, it transformed back into a staff. Now, there was a purpose in this. Throw down the staff, comes a snake. Now, grab it by the tail. Okay. He reaches over, grabs it by the tail. What is the purpose? Verse 5, that they, God's people, may believe that the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Now, would you have been impressed by that? Would, would you have followed somebody who could grab a snake by the tail and turn it back into a staff? In light of Moses' protest thus far, this sign would have spoken even louder, I think, though, to Moses. If God can take something as simple and as ordinary as a stick and transform it like this, God can take anything and make it his instrument. Moses, uh, imagine what God could do with you. You're a, a simple stick. How could God work in your life if he can do this or with my life or with your life? And if you look at verse 20, look, let your eye drift on down to verse 20 in this chapter. The staff at this point is given a new name. It is the rod of God. And so from this standpoint, I am sure that um, in Moses' mind, he is seeing how God is able to work to do this. Now, I'm sure of many of us in this room who, there are many of us who believe, all of us, I hope, believe in the power of God. But we sometimes doubt that God can use us, each of us individually, in some special way. And yet, God can and God is able. In fact, that's what God desires to do through us every single day. God wants to use us as ordinary instruments for his glory. This is the glory of God, to take simple things and to make great things from them. Note further, <clears throat> the sign would be sending a very strong message to people living in Egypt. And you say, in what way? Well, let me show you. What do we know about Egyptian culture that might shed light on this particular miracle? Uh, have you ever noticed the crown? This is Tutankhamun's uh, funerary mask over here to the right side. This is his throne over to the left. You notice he had a fetish about snakes. All, all of the Egyptians did. You know, they were just charmed by the snakes. And so on the headdress of, of the pharaohs, this snake was there. Maybe some of you, several years ago, there was an exhibit here at uh, VMFA uh, of, the, uh, of mummies and so on. If you've ever gone through a museum exhibit like that, uh, Kathy and I have had the privilege of going through the Cairo Museum and seeing all of these incredible mummies, but also the headdresses, the thrones, and all over the place, you will see various things. In fact, ladies, here was what, the Egyptian women were wearing in that day. If you'll notice a little hole there, this was an amulet. It's something you could put, you know, a cord through, maybe something like this. It was lying up here today, and I thought it was a cobra. But it was, uh, you could put that and wear it around your neck. You were wearing one of the gods of Egypt. You were displaying your loyalty to Pharaoh. Anybody have one of those on today? No? Okay. So <clears throat> the snake represented the power, the authority of Pharaoh and Pharaoh's gods. God was showing that he has power over all of that. What a reassuring sign. So, the second sign here, Moses' hand becomes leprous. Again, the Lord said to him, put the hand inside your coat. And when he did, no, I'm not going to pull anything out. Don't get nervous. When he pulled his hand out, though, it was eaten away. It was diseased. It was like, what is this? I knew that snake had something. I should never have touched that snake a minute ago. But no. And I don't believe, when you read verse 6b, which you see up there on the screen, uh, when he pulled his hand back out, behold, the hand was leprous like snow. I don't believe we can appreciate how this would have stunned or terrified Moses. I mean, the word behold there, oh, look, it's not that kind of word. Look, it's, it's an exclamation point. 
of what is going on in this situation. And God tells him, behold, it was, put your hand back in, pull it back out. And behold, look again, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. You say, how in the world is, is that looks like more of a parlor trick, something. You know, why, why is that? Well, in my research and reading, I found that there was a prevalence for leprosy and skin diseases in the Nile region during that particular time. And what that meant is that the fact that God could simply, not simply touch inanimate objects and, and do something with a shepherd's crook, but he could actually touch the human body. This is a foretaste, a shadow of what is going to happen in the plagues. And so this was to be a sign to them. You don't mess with this God. Third sign. Third sign is the water of the Nile becomes blood. Notice that verse here. It says, if they will not believe. God is saying this. If they will not believe. Now, God has said what? They will believe. They will listen. They will hear you. They will believe. God says, if they will not believe. Now, was God vacillating on this? No. He is accommodating God in his kindness and graciousness. Oh, let's just suppose they don't believe or listen to your voice. Here's what you do. You take some water from the Nile to pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you take from the Nile will become blood, not like blood, not red like blood. It will become blood on the dry ground, verse 9. Now, there's no demo with this at this point. The demo is coming for that because he's not even there at the Nile anyway. But he says, here's what, what you will do at that point. Now, why this particular sign of the, blood, of the, the Nile turning to blood? The, 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 uh, the Nile was so important to the people. It was their source of life, wealth, and power in Egypt. You can see here. It's a source of, well, washing your clothes. These are ladies along the Nile who are washing their clothes and uh, children helping out there. and do it. So the Nile's imported, right? Well, this is, this is pretty minor. The Nile, not only for its fish and other things that were there in its alluvial state when it, when it flooded over and it poured out over the land, it made the land on either side of the Nile rich, so that this is what it looks like along the Nile. The rich crops are everywhere. They can grow anything there. It's their life blood. And God was going to take the life blood from Pharaoh so that he would cry out and recognize, ah, I see that there is a God. Rick's going to explain some of that in chapter 5 and 6, what he will say. But here's, here's uh, let me go back up to places here. Where am I? All right, so Alec Motier again says this. If you look at the three signs, it points to the power of God to transform something, to renew something, and to conquer something. I think that's, that's a good way to look at these signs. God's almighty power to accomplish his purposes here. Let's see. Let me get on down to the right one. Okay. So, you would think he's got all these signs. He's armed. He's armed with the presence of God, the name of God, the power of God. That's the three things God has equipped him with in the first three objections and how he has answered. Okay, God, let's go, right? He's going to say, let's do it. Yes. Moses has a fourth objection. He says, what about my problem? You're talking about all these people with a problem. I've got a problem. And my problem is... Uh, I am not eloquent. Look at verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord. And by the way, that's lowercase. Interesting because that word means master. 
Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. There's a Lord and a servant here. I am slow of speech and tongue. Well, if you are the servant and the Lord has told you something to do and he is your master, why don't you do it? And his excuse is, well, I'm, I'm just not eloquent. Two things strike me as strange in that. And first of all, is this relationship of the words that he uses, the contrast here between Lord and servant as he speaks. And the second is, he thinks that God, who knows all things, doesn't know about his own limitations. God, you may not know this, but I've never been very good at talking. I'm not eloquent of speech. I'm not gifted in rhetoric. By the way, everything I've heard so far from Moses seems like he is pretty good at rhetoric. He keeps coming back to God and explaining to God why he can't do something. Have you got an answer for this one, God? Well, it's interesting to me that when you look down here at the third bullet, in Acts 7.22, it says, And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Remember, 40 years he had been there. Now he's been in the back part of a desert for 40 years. He had been instructed in all this wisdom, and he was what? Mighty. It's the third bullet. Mighty in words and deeds. Mighty in words. Now, maybe this is anachronistic in one sense, that we're looking back and we see what he does when he confronts Pharaoh. But he does have a gift of some sort to be able to confront Pharaoh. But he's trying to complain. And, and the sad fact is uh, he was probably looking, I, you know, I'm, I'm just not good enough. I, I don't have the tools, Lord, to do something like this. And in our world today, a lot of people, and especially in churches, they don't have too much confidence in their own abilities. And I guess in a sense they shouldn't have that. But in God, we have our confidence. We saw that from the Apostle Paul last week. And yet we're guilty. When it comes to God's work, somebody comes up and asks you, to say, I, I can't do that. I'm not equipped for that. Care to learn? No. <laughs> Care to try? No. So we're just as guilty as Moses, that Moses just doesn't get it. So verse 11, then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord, all capitals, Yahweh? God here is claiming his sovereignty over all things. God is saying, everything that is comes from me and has a purpose and has a use, all for my glory. Human limitations have never limited God. Whatever limitation you might think you have, God can overcome that and use that even for his own glory. He takes our weaknesses, our inabilities, our limitations, and God shines through those things. I'll tell you a story here in just a few minutes. So, for the fourth time then, God uh, comes to him and he he says, and I don't have this up on the screen, I don't think. Um, It is in verse 12. Now, therefore, go. Okay, you've made all your excuses. I'm telling you one more time, go. You know how many times he said go so far? This is the fourth time. Fourth time. Go. Do what I say. I will be with your mouth and teach you what you're to speak. Maybe this is why here in Acts 7, says that he was mighty in words and deeds because God did give him the words. God did teach him how to speak. And I think also when you look at that verse, here's an extension of what it means when God says, I will be with you. That doesn't mean he's strolling along just for the ride. He says here clearly, I will be with you. I will give you your words. I will help you, teach you what you should say. 
So you would think again, we've gone through these four things. You would think that he would finally surrender. But no, Moses has one more thing that he'd like to say to God. How about sending somebody else? Let another guy do it. Let another girl do it. I don't need to do this. Here, we're going to talk about God's, the provision of God. And maybe I should add this, the patience of God. Moses has gone on and on here, but God's going to give him someone to walk alongside him, a partner to encourage. And we see all this in 13 through 17. Look at verse 13. But he said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Now, we know from the scriptures that God is slow to anger. Aren't we all glad about that? <clears throat> However, I will tell you that Moses was a he was a special child. And uh, at least three to four other times when you start going into Deuteronomy, he he talks about how God got angry with him. And, you know, I guess we all would. But <clears throat> at what point does God become angry? Because God can become angry even with his children, even with his called servants. It's when we fail to trust and obey God, when we refuse the, his claims on our lives, when we resist his will and don't allow him to use us for his glory. You want to read a great, I, I don't have the time to share it, but a great instructional psalm on this, Psalm 78. It talks about, you know, what all God did, and it says, and then God's people were unfaithful. They just failed. And it says, and God was angry. But then God came back and did this and this. And it goes over and over and over in a cycle. <clears throat> God has called us, regardless of who we are. Let me see here. Of who we are, of what we, people think of us, of how others might listen, and of all the limitations we might have. Because God wants to use us for his glory. There's, there's the things I thought was coming up. So, regardless of who or what or how things happen in our lives, God can use us. Let me just tell you a little story here. I read this some years ago. There was a woman in Africa who became a Christian. And uh, being filled with gratitude for her salvation, she wanted to do something to share her faith with others. But there was a problem. You see, this, this woman wasn't like what I see as I look out across this crowd. She was blind. She was uneducated. And she was 70 years old. But she wanted to do something for God. Honestly, honestly, you think, what can God do? The lady in Africa, 70, blind, uneducated, she went to visit a missionary who had shared the gospel with her. She carried the French Bible that she had, which had been given to her, and she could neither see it nor read it because she was blind, but she had this Bible. And this woman came, uh, came along with a request to him that he would underline in red John 3.16. And so he did that. But why? The missionary was puzzled why she would make this request when she couldn't see it anyway. But out of curiosity, the missionary decided to watch the woman and see what she might do. And here's what this other missionary observed. The old, blind, newborn Christian took her Bible and sat down in front of a boys' school that afternoon and every afternoon for the next months. It became a daily routine for the woman and for the missionary to watch her. When the school was dismissed, she would call a boy or two over to see her, ask them if they knew French, we. Oui. And when the boys proudly responded, yes, uh, she said, please read this underline. I'm blind, I can't see it. And they would read John 16. And as they did, she would follow up with a question. 
Do you know what this means? And then she would tell them about God's love, about Christ's death, the promise of eternal life for all who would believe in Jesus. Poor thing. I bet she had little to show for those meager efforts, right? I mean, what can a blind woman, 70 years old, uneducated, can't even read herself, she sits there and just has them read John 3.16 and then talk to them about it. Well, the missionary reported that over the remaining years of the woman's life, not only did many come to know Jesus Christ, but 24 young men became pastors that she had witnessed to and won to Christ. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Well, Moses is armed. He's equipped with the promise of God, the power of God, the name of God, the sovereignty of God, and now the provision of God. Because God is going to answer every concern, every problem, every suggestion he might have. And so you want me to send someone else? Okay, I'm going to send someone else with you. And so when we see the next passage here, God sent Moses' brother Aaron. I hope those two got along. I think they probably did because God says he's, he's going to be joyful to see you. But look at here at these verses 14 to 17. Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? The Levite? He's talking there about a, a, a official view because the Levites, as we know them as priests, later in the books of Moses, they had not been instituted as a priesthood. And yet, Aaron was recognized as the Levite is a definite term there. He's already achieved a sense of people look to him. And so he has that, that place of authority and respect among the people. And then notice tongue-in-cheek, maybe, if God speaks that way. I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. By the way, he was already on the way. God knew this whole episode. God knew what was going to happen. God was still tolerant of Moses, and he's already sent Aaron to meet him. Aaron's got a three-day journey to get out to where he needs to be. So, behold, he's coming to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. And you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you what you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people. He shall be with your mouth. He shall be as God. You shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. What, what's, what's a phrase in all here that stands out to you that just jumps off the page? Maybe not the one that I picked out, but what, what, when you ever see that passage, what really strikes you? Okay, he's going to speak for him. Notice that phrase. It's in uh, the end of verse 16, and you shall be as God to him. And, and here, here is what he is saying. So uh, God says to Moses, you're going to be God to him. And he's using a simile. As God had spoken to Moses. So Moses like God, will share the truth with Aaron, and then Aaron will speak. I wonder if Moses at that point said, oh, I hope Aaron cooperates with me better than I've cooperated with God. <laughs> but no problem, because God's already told Aaron, too, what's happening here. So this simile is, uh, is what that stands for, because that, that kind of shocks you. You're going to be as God. It's not that Moses was a God, okay? You are taking on the responsibility, the role of God and speaking for God. It's the same thing that our pastor does every Sunday when he preaches. This is one of the most intimidating and frightening things as a pastor. You stand in the pulpit, and people are listening, and they want to hear God's word, not the pastor himself. What does God have to say to us? 
And so he has to get the word from God. That's why you pray for your pastor, that as he studies, as he labors in his study, that he will come out of there with the word of God to equip us. All right, so. Next verse. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. But now God speaks, and there's more revelation. Verse 19. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt. There it is again. Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons, he has two, and had them ride on a donkey, and, and, and had them ride on a donkey, and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hands. There's that new title. It was the staff of Moses. Now it is the staff of God. Note several things here that uh, a fear has been removed from Moses' heart. It makes me wonder if everything was kind of clouded by this one fear. And that is when he left Egypt. He was afraid for his life because there was a uh, a death threat on him. Pharaoh said, I'm going to kill him. And maybe now he says, well, maybe there's a better Pharaoh back there. But but he says, don't fear. Don't fear for your life because the one who sought your life is now dead. And we see also here that the staff of God is in Moses' hands as he leaves. He said, be sure you take that. And then notice the next verses. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And then you shall say to Pharaoh, here is something very significant. It's the only time this expression is used in the Old Testament, but this is an exclamation point for sure. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. I'm getting goosebumps reading that because I know the rest of the story. I know, and so do you. You know what's going to happen here. And Moses, who's a guy from the desert, comes up to Pharaoh and says, The Lord Yahweh says, you let my firstborn son go, or I will kill your firstborn son. uh, here's Here's a quote for you here. The relationship between God and Israel was that of father, son. Here's some other passages that parallel this. That we, where we see the same elements, not stated exactly this way. They are a perverse uh, generation, children who are unfaithful. And yet even unfaithful children are loved by God as he seeks to draw them back with his love, with his mercy and his grace. So this is a very critical moment. This is critical information for Moses to know, and he has cataloged that away. So true to his promise... Verses 27 to 31 tell us that the Lord said to Aaron, go to the wilderness to meet Moses. This had already been said. This is a flashback of something he had said. So he went and met him at the mountain of God. And where is that? Where's the mountain of God? Horeb or Sinai. Okay. So Moses had been there at the burning bush and talked to God, complained to God. He went back to Jethro and Midian. And now he's coming back toward the mountain of God. And here comes Aaron already in transit. And he's going to meet him there at the mountain of God. So he met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord, which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he commanded him to do. And then Moses and Aaron went and gathered all the elders of the people. Aaron spoke all the words the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in sight of the people. And the people didn't believe. No. What does it say? And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. 
Moses was wrong. God was right. Remember that every time you have an argument with God, you were wrong. God is right. But what about Pharaoh? How will he respond? What's he going to do? Well, Rick's going to deal with that. And uh, so I'm going I'm to pause right here. I've got some other notes here, but um, I'm going to pause there and just see. Let you catch up with me because Kathy and I are going to be gone for the next couple of weeks, and Rick's going to take over. And I know he'll do a fabulous job. And I want you to ask him about did Pharaoh harden his heart or did God harden his heart? I want you to ask him that question and just nail him to the ground on that. And there's several other questions if you'll see me afterwards because I don't want you to be prepared. So see me about that. Questions that you have today? Anything we've talked about thus far? Yes, sir. Do I think that Moses was of the house of that it's important? Right. Yeah, his, his and in fact, his mother, Jochebed, uh, first part of her name is, is Yahweh, the shortened form of Yahweh. So there, there is a very strong spiritual connection, too. And so you've got two men from that house spiritually. So, yes, I think there is a significance there. I don't know how much to make of that, except God uses chosen people and those who are in spiritual ministry in, in special ways. And so here was going to be the delivery from the house of Levi. Do you have follow up on that with me? What's, what are you think? What's going through your mind? Because, Matt, I, oh, I would love to know everything goes through your mind. So <laughs> I'm, I'm serious, though. What what are you seeing that maybe I'm not seeing? Mm-hmm. Is just another house. Right? Yep. That's correct. He represents everybody and he serves everybody. Yeah, I, I don't think I don't think it's an accident that he's a Levite. I, I certainly think that's for part of the plan here. Um, I'm I at this point. You know, being the spokesman for God and being a Levite too, that's foreshadowing that as well. Okay. Yeah, that's that's good observation. Yes. Now you're talking. You're taking us back to Genesis now, right? This is a different Pharaoh, different Pharaoh. We're now 80 years beyond Moses' childhood. So 40 years, um, Moses was 40 years growing up in the house of Egypt. He was 40 years in the wilderness. He's 80 years old when he's arguing with God, should he go do this or not? He lives another 40 years. Because he goes through the wilderness for 40 years. He spends 80 years of his life in the wilderness with a bunch of complainers. It's like being a pastor of a church. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. He is called a deliverer in Scripture.
he he is the leader, the ruler, and so on. Uh, yeah, we wouldn't go so far as maybe say the king, but 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 yeah, he, he is in that mold. He is in that circle. Uh, prophet, yes, he's a prophet. Priest, mm, he hasn't been appointed as a priest. He hasn't been appointed as a priest. Yeah, because he's he's dead before there is a priesthood. I was hoping someone would bring that up because Rick, I know, has an answer. Verses 24 to 26. Let, let's, let's talk about that. And I, I may, I, I came with some notes, and I'll, I will probably mess everybody's brain up when I do this, okay? But let's read the verses because commentators will tell you, and I, I've read over and over because they keep saying, well, you know, we don't really know. This is the hardest text. This is the hardest Hebrew. These are the hardest expressions. So 24 to 26. <clears throat> so this is just a new paragraph. A little insert put in here. You know, incidental, not important. It is important. I will tell you that. I think sometimes we build a big, big story behind this and miss the importance of it. <clears throat> here we go. At a lodging place on the, uh, verse 24 of chapter 4, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it. I think the NASB says she threw it at his feet and said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. That is, speaking of God, it was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Anybody got any answers to that? All right. Um, Typical explanation is that, all right, God gets angry with Moses again as he's going along because Circumcision hasn't been performed on one of the sons. And so, therefore, because of that, Moses gets deathly ill. He says to his wife, Zipporah, Zipporah, perform the circumcision. What? You want me to do what? And, and she's upset. And she goes and she does that. And she does the circumcision, comes over and throws it at his feet. By the way, it's not feet. That, that is a boy, euphemism. And so she, I'll let you look it up yourself. Uh, it's a euphemism. And she throws it at him, hits him in his midsection. And having done that, she calls him a, a bloody bridegroom. And then she walks away and goes back. She leaves him. And what takes the two children with her? And we don't read about her again till Exodus 18. Okay, that's the story. Any other questions? <laughs> now, that's the way we usually read it. <clears throat> I'm going to uh, tell you something that I've seen. That, and that's, I will tell you, that is very, uh, for me, that seems to be putting a lot of conjecture on the story. And... So I'm just going to tell you what I've been reading. Don't take this as the All Saints position on this. I don't know what the All Saints position is, if there is one. But I'm going to, I'm going to uh, give you some quotes from a, a scholar by the name of Dwayne Garrett, who has written a number of Old Testament commentaries, including a massive book on Exodus. He also has written a Hebrew grammar. He is a thorough Hebrew. He teaches Hebrew he is into Hebrew. Okay, so, first of all, I read the story to you. I paused as I was reading there in verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him. Met who? Now, now we might think, well, probably Moses, probably. But there is no antecedent to this. This story is just injected there. And so, he says this. The text does not say Yahweh met and tried to kill Moses, because that's usually the interpretation you hear. Um, 
Um, in fact, Moses is never even mentioned in these three verses at all. Just him, him. So, only three characters are mentioned in the story. Yahweh, Zipporah, her son. Second thing to observe in this, Genesis 17, 14 indicated that an uncircumcised male should be cut off from the people, and there's no indication that the father of an uncircumcised male should be punished for it. So who is sick? Who is the one going through this? Is it Moses? It doesn't say that. Chances are it's the child who is sick. And again, we're dealing, we're dealing here, we don't have enough information. And there's nothing elsewhere in Scripture that talks about this. Third thing, the text says Zipporah circumcised her son, not his son. Now, what that's telling us is this is something there that's going on personally right there. It's not like Moses said, go, I circumcised your son. No, her son. There is something there that she is doing to try to help and save her son. Fourth thing. We have no grounds for thinking that Moses told her to perform the circumcision. From what we see in the text, she did it on her own. In fact, uh, most translations, like our ESV, translates that Zipporah touched Moses' feet with a circumcised foreskin. ESV does that. NIV does that. New RSV does that. So this is just their way of reading into the text. When you're, when you're translating, you have to try to make the text mean something. So they've interpreted uh, the text in that way. But when you go back to the Hebrew, this is very nebulous what's happening. Um, another something else to note. We have no reason to think that the feet she touched belonged to Moses. The most logical antecedent to uh, his to this is to his feet is her son and not Moses who is never mentioned. So again, it said if you follow just the flow of the text, then Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet. Well, Moses is not in there. That's an addition. It would say touched his feet, cut off her son's foreskin, touched his feet, which aren't feet. Okay. And one final thing, Jethro, does anybody remember what Jethro was? He was a priest in Midian, okay? As a priest in Midian, his daughter Zipporah would have been very acquainted with the various types of of things, including uh, circumcision, because circumcision was uh, performed among Semites. And so... Here, and this is part of the, in fact, even her, her language, you're a bloody bridegroom, uh, that is actually a, a little bit different dialect. And you, as a, in, in nowhere in scripture, does a Hebrew woman or other woman call her husband a bridegroom because they're already married. They use another term. So they're interpreting, there's, there's the words in the Hebrew text, which are, are not pure Hebrew, uh, are probably reflecting maybe something from a ritual. Maybe it's like this, and I've, my time is up, but maybe let me at least leave you here. They're traveling along. A son gets sick. He's not circumcised. They know the law of God has said that you've got to be circumcised. Otherwise, he will be cut off. Moses is disqualified, probably. All right, so Zipporah, who knows uh, the the rituals and she knows what you do some goes and she performs the circumcision touches the feet and then says these words which were more of the, the liturgical words that would be used in an occasion like this you know it is done as the lord has commanded or whatever you know uh, so i know that's not satisfactory and i can't tell you Exclamation point, that's, that's the answer. It's intriguing to me. It's intriguing. 
But to read it the other way is reading a lot into the text about she's mad, she leaves him. Um, when Moses is not even mentioned, he's not even said that he is sick. Um, so, on that very happy note, I will leave you, and Rick will start next week by explaining the way it should be explained and uh, give you a, a definitive answer on it. All right, God bless you. See you in the next service.